Brent, and welcome to The World Transformed. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. How are you, my friend? Man, I am doing great. Excited to get going with uh, another futuristic show this evening. Well, you know, we've got a three-part series we're starting tonight, and we've got a very special guest with us who's going to be with us throughout this series. Let's just bring him out. His name is Steve Wells. Steve is a global futurist, a keynote speaker, and he's COO of Fast Future, which is a professional foresight firm. Steve helps clients and event delegates understand the key future factors driving innovation, growth, and disruptive change, highlighting the new thinking and business models enabled by exponential technologies such as artificial intelligence, immersive technologies like augmented and virtual reality, and hyper-connectivity. He explores the mindset shifts and leadership capabilities required to compete in the emerging future in order to help leaders to make informed choices on the potential impact of emerging technologies. He is a co-editor and contributing author for The Future of Business Beyond Genuine Stupidity, love that title, Ensuring AI Serves Humanity, and The Future Reinvented, Reimagining Life, Society, and Business, and the recently published book, A Very Human Future, Enriching Humanity in a Digitized World. And that is the book we're going to be talking with Steve about tonight. Steve Wells, welcome to The World Transformed. Thank you very much indeed, Phil. Great to be here, and uh, hello to you, Steve. Thank you. Great having you with us. And I thought what we would do over the next three days is just kind of go through some of the topics that emerge in your book, A Very Human Future. But maybe before we dive into that, maybe say a few words about that title. That's an interesting title, especially following on a book where you, where you talk about the distinction between artificial intelligence and genuine stupidity. What's, what's the significance of talking about a, a very human future? Well, with a very human future, what we're really saying is that the point in technological evolution that we've arrived at gives us a bit of a choice point. So we can let technology evolve, let technology companies take control of our lives in sort of the way that we've seen up to now. But if then if we project forward in the, with the sort of technologies we're starting to see with robotics, with artificial intelligence, with the blockchain, we, we can kind of look forward and potentially see some quite dystopian outcomes. So a very human future is really about saying, what are the alternatives? What are the things that we need to think about in order to create an environment that allows humanity to flourish? So it's not about stopping the evolution and the development of technology. It's actually about leveraging that so that we can enrich humanity, so that we can continue to thrive in a digitized world. Uh, because I think the world, you know, if we look at a range of different drivers that we see, the world is getting more complex. It's getting more uncertain. So you know, let's use the power that technologies represent so that we can achieve a very human future rather than a very technologically driven future. I think that's very timely. There, there seems to be a lot of reconsidering of the future going on right now. I don't know if you've seen George Gilder's book, if you've had a chance to read that, his new one, Life After Google, but it, I think, is very much in that same vein, looking at, well, here's the future that we're being promised by, say, the big technology companies, and maybe here's where it, where it might actually go. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot of people kind of stepping back and saying, hmm, is this, is this really the future that we, that, that we would have voted for had we been given a vote, right? 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And, that, that, and that's certainly what we're picking up as well. I guess the things that we're, we're talking about in, in this book, though, is the path to the future is not set. So how do we get the various stakeholders across society, so government, um, non-governmental groups, uh, business, individuals, uh, different countries, different cultures, to kind of come together and think about what this means. Because quite often, we're left with the conundrum of if artificial intelligence takes 50 or 80% of the jobs out of the economy, um, what do we do next? Uh, so what we're trying to do is actually create some kind of sense of what the options might be, not just in terms of how the future may turn out, but also what are some of the choice points as a society we have to ensure that everyone can share in the potential benefits that technologies represent. So let's talk about some of those choices. The book opens with the chapter called Future Snapshots, a 25-Year Outlook. So step us through some possible futures 25 years from now. Where does that put us in the year 20? 43, is that right? Where, what, what are things going to be looking like there potentially? One of the things that I'd always say when anyone asks me a kind of a question like, what's it going to look like in 2043, um, is that we don't know. And that's absolutely critical because what we're trying to do with this book is create a range of potential scenarios. So, uh, for example, we could see um, very few jobs left. We're already seeing the impact of artificial intelligence and other automation systems taking jobs increasingly out of the white collar sector. We've seen it for years, haven't we, in the, in the blue collar, but you know, we're starting to see this creep into, um, into the white collar sector. So increasing automation is, is one thing that we potentially see. We can also see other technologies kind of getting in on that act, if you like. So if we think about the potential of blockchain uh, to create a live ledger um, of uh, moving products around the world, moving containers around the world, the way that we may even be able to put our identities on the blockchain to um, smooth the way that we can travel around the world. There are lots of these technologies that basically in, potentially involve less people in, uh, in actually delivering the services that, technologies, uh, that the technologies replace. So this 25-year outlook is, about, uh, is saying here are a number of different complex social um, social, um, political, economic, technological factors that could play out and interact in an exceedingly complex way over the next 25 years. And that kind of sets the framework, I think, for, first of all, the pace and scale of change that we're seeing, because the kind of things that we're talking about in the book, um, they, they, they might feel a bit fanciful. Sometimes I look at some of these technologies, and I think this is a bit like science and magic blurring. But the important thing to realize is that the things that people are talking about, they're in labs right now. They're being tested right now. There are ser serious scientists working on some of these things right now, including things like brain to, wireless brain-to-computer interface. So there's some really fascinating things going on. And, and these technologies could have such a radical change on our world that we need to just try and create a sense of complexity, of uncertainty, um, of radical change, of very quick change as well, so that we feel that we need to do something about it. It's kind of a call to a, a call to arms almost. Um, and, and these 
and, and this is why I kind of step back a little bit from the projection thing, because we're not saying that any one of the scenarios that we speak about in the book will come to be. What we're saying is that we need to use that uncertainty about the future to try and create robust and flexible policy, robust and flexible strategies, because the rate at which we will move through the transition from what I think of as a current analog world into a fully digitized society in the future could be really, really fast. And I think that our established businesses and governments actually move much more slowly than the pace of change we might expect to see. And that creates a whole bunch of challenges um, for those organizations. So how do we look at the way politics work and make it change more quickly? How do we look at the way that we create legislation and make that happen more quickly? How do we create a sense that experimentation, both in politics and business, is the right thing to do, simply because we really don't know how the future will play out? And I think therein is part of the challenge because we see our companies every quarter, every year, trying to create a sense of certainty for the market so that investors feel safe and secure. And I guess our democratic governments do that as well. As best so, they can, sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you know so we have to try and encourage people to become more used to uncertainty, more used to experimentation. Well, I think uh, experimentation, I think, is the key, and and I can't see that any one nation is going to get it exactly right. Can you? I mean, it's 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 so complex. All the different things that are going to be tried at one time that you know every country will go down some wrong wrong paths, and perhaps it's it makes it extremely important that uh, the lines of communication are open across the oceans so that we can learn from each other, right? I think that's absolutely crucial. One of the things that I'll point to, and, I, and, I, and we might, might talk about this a bit later on as well, but one of the things I would point to is the potential power of artificial intelligence. And Professor Stephen Hawking, a couple of years ago, before his, uh, uh, before his death, was speaking about this. If artificial intelligence becomes as powerful as some people believe it might be, then there's an argument to suggest that it and its future evolution um, could become as potentially dangerous to humanity as nuclear weapons. Now, we have a nuclear non-proliferation treaty around the world, but we don't have anything at the moment that talks about how we might ethically develop and deploy artificial intelligence. So that in itself is going to require quite a significant uh, quite significant collaboration around the world. Of course, the interesting difference between those two interesting pieces of technology is one is, is controlled by governments and the second is controlled by corporations. Right. right. So I think therein, you know, therein lies one of the other complications that we might see in trying to formulate some kind of global treaty around the ethics of developing artificial intelligence. Well, and in fact, when you think about it, Nuclear weapons, once the purview just of superpowers, nation states, potentially they fall into the hands of other players somewhere down the road. But artificial intelligence, advanced computer technology, that's falling into the hands of other people all the time, right? I mean, so, so the potential to build AI, even if all the major powers agree they're not going to do it, you could have five guys in a basement someplace, right, who could, who could push yeah. right on ahead. I mean, that's, that's the big difference, I think. And, and, and what's interesting for me about that, if we, if, you know, if we pull that back up to, uh, um, uh, to, to the national scale and, and then think about 
the global political landscape at the moment. Some of, some of those tensions from uh, the 70s, the 60s maybe, are starting to resurface. You know, they're starting to resurface between the US and China, albeit based on trade, but also based on, on China looking to reposition itself in the world. They're also based on the tensions between Russia, um, Western Europe, North America, um, because of Russia's perceived requirement to reposition itself um, uh, as a global, as a real global power as well. So we're seeing some of these geopolitical tensions, I think, resurface in a way that maybe we wouldn't have expected five or ten years ago. So you know, we're then back into the how do we do the um, how do we do the validation of compliance if there is um, a, some kind of global ethical treaty around the development of artificial intelligence. Um, what about if it is, as you say, um, in a garage somewhere with five guys, um, you know, kind of creating new types of um, uh, new types of application? Um, what what do we do if it is China that decides to go it alone and not adhere to um, uh, some of the treaties that, that may be uh, that may be put together? So I think there are some really interesting political angles to this going forward, and I think that's why it is so complicated at the moment. You then go to the question: so who might administer that kind of a, a treaty as well? Ultimately, it'll have to be the AI overlords themselves, right, that run it. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, it could be. Give, it could be. give them all the reins, right, I think. Now, the, the second chapter of the book, you talk about the big reboot, and that's kind of interesting because we're, we're just talking about geopolitics, and uh, the U.S. Secretary of State famously a few years ago went to Russia and said she was going to hit the reset button with them. So, so there, there's this interesting idea of when and how do we start things over, or do we hit a point beyond which we have to really make things work differently. Talk a little bit about the big reboot in terms both of maybe society overall and, and specifically in terms of education and employment. What is, what is that going to mean for us as, a, as people living with technology? Yeah, first of all, you would hope that before we get to some kind of critical tipping point, um, that, uh, that governments and society more broadly have realized that it would be a good thing to start doing something in an evolutionary way um, rather than a revolutionary way because these kind of systems and structures that we're talking about here uh, are so complex and so fundamental to the, the ongoing success and cohesion in, with society, I think. So in the big reboot, what we're really saying is, look, we can see how technologies will fundamentally change business. We can see how things like robotics and artificial intelligence will allow us to be increasingly efficient. Efficiency generally means doing things with less people, which is fine and that's great, so long as we then put processes, systems and structures in place to retrain those people for the new industries that will start to emerge. Because as much as we see um, things like artificial intelligence likely to take jobs out of the economy. We can also see a plethora of new technologies starting to emerge, be they through human enhancement, through, through nanotechnology, new computing um, uh, technologies, the blockchain, 4D printing, 3D printing. You know, there's a whole mass of these new technologies that are very likely to create new business opportunities. So if that is the case, then how do we re-educate people for employment in the future? There's some kind of suggestion at the moment that maybe two-thirds of kids that are currently starting school are going to work in jobs that don't exist right now. So if we go back to the idea of what might it look like in 2043 compared to now, already we begin to get a sense that maybe the jobs market would be just so radically different. And that's within one individual's progress through school before they get to uh, university. 
So we need to start to think now about how do we rethink education? But it's not just about education at school. I think it's about ongoing lifelong learning. It's about training within the workplace. How do we make sure that people are ready to adapt to the changing nature of their jobs as well as thinking about completely new jobs? I think then we need to think about, so what might the potential economic impact of some of these societal transitions be? What are some of the things we need to think about in considering the potential of technologically unemployed people? How do we fund the costs of navigating kind of that turbulent economic transition period that we might see between where we are now and a fully digitized society? And of course, that's where we start to debate the, uh, the benefits or otherwise of schemes like universal basic income or universal basic services, hmm. or maybe um, a politically more palatable conditional basic income and conditional basic services. So we need to find a way to continue if we do see um, radical changes to the job market through increasing automation, um, ways to create a continued sense of cohesiveness within society to make sure people feel equipped and ready to take on the next job and learning challenge because potentially the world will be so radically different within the lifetime of many of us. What I like about that especially, Steve, is the notion of if we can focus on the benefits, if we can focus on the upsides, the opportunities, and get people thinking about those as well as the risks. There are downsides, there are risks, yep. there are tremendous risks that lie ahead. But if anything is going to motivate, say, within an industry or within a given government or for the world geopolitically, people to make the right kinds of positive choices here, it's, it's going to be because they're going after, they're recognizing that there is, there is a big upside there. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think that that debate is starting to happen. I don't hear too much of that debate happening inside our major governments around the world. Um, so um, the, the kind of some of the notions around America first um, and what's perceived from outside um, the U.S. as, as protection of them. Um, for some of the things that are going on in Europe and, and particularly the UK exiting the European Union, are kind of examples where we're seeing almost a regression um, away from what's been happening over the last 20, 30, 40 years around globalization, around um, increasing free trade, uh, around the willingness to embrace new ideas from around the world. So at the very point, you could argue that we need to be more open. We have to be wary of the dangers of increasing isolationism, I think. Yeah, well, there's, obviously there's great comfort in familiar ideas, and there's a lot of insecurity around unfamiliar ideas. But if we can, if we can get people to see that there's something in it for them, that there's something in, 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 in the world yeah. for, for all of us, to, to moving ahead with our thinking. I think that'll be tremendous. All right, well, we're going to pick this up in our next program, and we're going to talk a little bit further about some of these ideas. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, Steve. Look forward to talking with you again soon. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of The World Transform. We will be back again with part two of our discussion with Steve Wells. And until next time, live to see it. Mm -hmm.